Hi, I'm Jim Rappel. Welcome to this episode of the Dye Subcast, simply the best place to get information about dye sublimation printing. We talk with equipment manufacturers, consumable manufacturers, dye sublimation producers, and we also share our experiences from running a dye sublimation business. Doesn't matter if you are new to the business or a seasoned professional with decades of experience, we're certain there is something here for you. So let's get this episode started off. Shelby, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you uh, let you introduce our guests. Okay. I'm Shelby Sapusik, and thank you, Jim, for that introduction. And today we are talking with Ken Bach. He is the business development director for Aberdeen Fabrics. Uh, thanks for being here, Ken. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. I've been in Dye Sub now since 2008, back when it was really starting to take hold. Um, I've been with Aberdeen about 10 years. Aberdeen is a, is a mill. We, we manufacture fabric out of North Carolina, which makes us a little bit unique. And, and actually, we're hoping that it's also a benefit to the market when the market comes back. Because, you know, we're ready to supply fabric quickly because we make it, you know, opposed to the shipping and the overall overseas costs and, and tariffs. I think we're in a good position going forward. But again, I've been with Aberdeen, you know, 10 years now and, and been dedicated to fabric side of the business since 2008 and various other positions prior. What part of North Carolina? I'm in Greensboro. It's actually, um, Aberdeen is a small city near Pinehurst. Okay. Uh, about an hour outside of Charlotte. Okay. You know, give or take. Um, I actually don't live personally in, in North Carolina. I'm actually on the West Coast. I've been on the West Coast now for a good 35 years, and any company has asked me to come on board, I said, oh, I want to stay on the West Coast. <laughs> so, Fair enough. All right. Um, well, we'll dive into the questions we have here then. You were recommended to us as a guest by uh, Randy Anderson, who was our mm -hmm. previous guest on our podcast uh, from Muto America. And uh, I had not I didn't know who you were. I had not heard of Aberdeen before, so I did a little research, and I found an article that you wrote back in 2014. And I liked how you said that all fabrics are not are not all fabrics are created equal. And so I know I know from working in dye sub, we don't have video for our listeners, but you can see I have a heat press behind me here. Um, you know, I know that all fabrics are different. Um, can you talk about uh, some of the differences, the variables, and how they affect dye sub? Sure. You know, you, you have a couple of different ways of making the fabric as far as, you know, uh, knitting it or, or war woven it um, or weaving it, I should say. You know, so you have a woven, you have a circular knit, you have a warp knit, and they're all very different in how they react and, and how they behave when you put them in structures and even how you print to them. OK, uh, and then beyond that, it's really the type of yarn that's going into the fabric. You know, you, you have textured yarns, you have flat yarns, circular type yarns, and, and these yarns will absorb ink differently. And, and the other side of it, you know, which I always like to point out, you know, I've had customers ask me all the time, I need an eight ounce fabric, right? Well, not all eight ounce fabrics are the same. You know, it's kind of, I'll, I'll put a correlation to making nails, right? If I told you I need a thousand pounds of nails, you're going to give me large nails. Well, that may not really fit my job. Same thing with fabric. You know, you have fabric that is made with two bar systems with, you know, two spools of yarn, basically, or three bar. You use either a, a, a thin gauge or a low denier fabric, or, you know, like you know, or a hard denier, and it can create different results in, in that fabric, and especially how it even takes in the ink. So you know, there's a lot of variables, and knowing about what your project's going to be, and and speaking to a professional that can help you kind of guide through the type of fabric and the type of design you would need would be very beneficial. I mean, that's very simplistic. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but you know, I, again. Um, that's why I meant in my article, not all fabrics are the same. You know, 
I can give you five eight ounce fabrics and they're all strikingly different depending on how they're constructed and the type of yarns that are used in those fabrics. Exactly. Yep. Uh, it's interesting to me, you know, when I'm doing it, you know, I've, we've done some face masks, we've had gaiters, we have socks, mm -hmm. you know, and all, and the way the fabrics are, it takes me some trial and error uh, as far as how much pressure I use, how long, you know, exactly. you know um, because they're all just different, they're different thickness. Well, even, even take, you know, gaiters, you know, quite often you need a stretchy fabric for a gaiter, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you can create stretch in various ways. You can create it one by putting spandex involved into the product, spandex or lycra, you know, very similar. And that's going to give you stretch. Well, there's some negatives to that. One, you if you want that fabric to be fire retardant, you have to put a lot of fire retardant into that because spandex is flammable. And also spandex reacts differently than, than pure polyester. The other side of it is you want to do a cater, you may want to do it without any spandex using a circular knit. A circular knit tends to have some of the similar characteristics that spandex will give the fabric without some of the negatives like the, the FR issue. And it's going to have a different feel. You know, circular knits tend to be more wrinkle resistant. They tend to be more uh, um, softer to the hand and smoother to print on. And that's another aspect of it. You know, again, if I took a woven, a circular knit and a, and a warp knit, I'm going to get very different texture. And then the other interesting thing is even on the side of the fabric, you take a traditional warp knit, which is, is a, probably the most popular fabric used in the trade show market. You know, if you look at a lot of the trade show fabrics, they are warp knits. And if you take the top or the bottom of the fabric, the loop side or the satin side in some cases, it's going to look very different compared to what a woven would look like compared to what a circular knit would look like. Again, that goes back to the whole premise of, you know, understanding a little more about the fabric itself. Sure. So just on your experiences, you talked about your, you've been in dye sub for many, many years. What are some surprising changes that you've witnessed over the years? Dye sub seems to be growing at an exponential pace right now. It is. It is. You know, what's, what's interesting, well, first, let me just say one thing about dye sub that folks don't always realize. Fabric is, is, is the most popular way to do dye sub, but you can also dye sub onto metal, onto glass. You know, folks who get those mugs in the mail with, you know, ha happy birthday on it or a photograph, that's a dice sub image, but that's not what we're here to talk about today, but I just wanted to mention that. You know, the, the, the interesting trends seem to, to change depending on, on where the market is. You know, your early dice sub was always done through transfer. You, you mentioned a heat press you have behind you. I'm pretty sure what you do is you print on paper and you transfer it over to, to fabric. Well, around 2007, they started coming up with a process where you can print directly to the fabric which was direct printing. Now, again, that's a term that I always caution people on when you say direct printing, because well, folks ask me, how do you directly print on fabric? Well, you can also directly print on fabric using latex and, and, and UV, but again, that's not our subject today. But so direct printing started coming up around 2007 and it became, it actually allowed the market to expand because in a trade show market, you know, fabric wasn't really accepted in the trade show market because it was too complicated for a printer to, you know, get a heat press, to get a, uh, a separate printer to buy the paper and understand how to make all these things work well. So when it came out with these early dice sub direct printers, you were able to now make a print as quickly as you were able to make a print on a, on a UV or a solvent printer and get it out to market. If you really look at the trend, especially in the trade show market, it went from maybe two or 3% fabric to almost 70, 80% today. And I really contribute that to the direct printers that came to, 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 to market. But what's interesting in recent years, even those printers have gone back to transfer. You know, there are advantages and disadvantages of both um, 
products. I know that's a question we're going to get into later about what uh, somebody getting into the market should look for, and I can save that that to elaborate on that a little bit more so. But but that's probably the biggest surprise to me is is going from transfer to direct back to transfer, and now kind of a hybrid in some cases. And it all depends on what your needs are and what your floor prints like. And again, we'll get into that answer a little bit later. So. Ken, the last year has forced uh, many companies to make big changes in our decisions. And we're wondering if Aberdeen has made any significant changes. I'm assuming with COVID, you probably have over the last year. And if so, are they temporary, permanent, um, or a combination of both? Well, actually, uh, it is a combination. You know, one of the things, you know, Aberdeen was in a good position prior because we had a fairly good market share. And it allowed us to have the funds to survive COVID. Our market was a little bit diverse. You know, we didn't just cater to the trade show market, which was a big part of our market. I'm not going to downplay that. And that went away. You know, obviously there are no trade shows or events in, in the last 10 months. But we also did a significant amount of business um, with the retailers, retail displays, which is kept uh, at a good pace. And, and we did do some PPE. You know, uh, some, we had a big customer doing a lot of masks over the last eight months. Um, but really where the changes came in is it gave us time to, to reflect on our business. We became more efficient. Um, uh, Tim, the owner of the company, and, and he also designs our fabrics, looked at his business. And, you know, when you're running at a fast pace, it's hard to, to change what you're doing and how your processes are. But when you slow down, like we had to, it allowed him to really take a look at that business and, and make it better and more efficient and actually design new products for the up and coming market. You know, some of the circular knits I mentioned have not been very popular. They're, now become, they're going to become popular with what we produce because of the fact that we see the, the advantage of them. But not only that, even our, our warp knits and our wovens, you know, we've looked at them, redesigned some of them, and actually feel like we're going to be stronger coming out of it. The other side of it is, from a marketing and sales point of view, I think we've all learned it. You know, we're on Zoom today. I, I never used Zoom prior to um, COVID. Never even knew what it was, Right. You know, now I'm realizing I can do a lot of good work just by sitting across from my customer, send him the fabric ahead of time. We can look at it together. The only difference is when I'd eaten lunch together, literally. And I can see that continuing. Yeah, I, I'm still going to travel. We feel strongly about meeting up our customers and shaking hands, but I don't have to do it on a weekly basis like I did in the past. So both from an efficiency point of view and designing new fabrics, which and the way we market probably a more permanent than, than anything else. You know, the PPE stuff will probably go away. You know, once COVID is over, I don't anticipate us making fabric for the mask and, and the, the PPE market. But that, you know, again, if the demand is there, we'll, we'll accommodate it. We've been hearing that a lot of people uh, have been taking advantage of this downtime to mm -hmm. invest in new equipment. Uh, Jim and I are color management consultants and trainers and you know, they get new equipment. We've been, we say that we've been as busy as we have been in the past. Uh, people bringing us in for, you know, now they have time for us to come in and train their employees how to do, come up with a better color management strategy. Well, now, it, it, it really until, until January of this year, it was definitely down, at, you know, and throughout, last year was down a different amount at different times in the year. Um, you know, we thought in the summer it started picking back up and we thought, oh, this is okay, this is fine. And then, and then in the, the, the fall and, and winter it slowed down and then picked back up. And then it, I'm telling you, January, it's like, I'm as busy as I've ever been. Shelby's as busy as she's ever been. Um, 
my son who works for us, I would say is as busy as he's ever been. So it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's been a strange year because there are some companies that really benefited. They almost say it was a blessing. You know, I'm not going to say it was a blessing for Aberdeen, but it was a positive. It really was. And when, when Tim and I discuss it, you know, we look at this year being a year that's really going to help Aberdeen grow more so in the future because of the changes we made. And, and, and like you're just stating, companies have needed to make these uh, adjustments, you know, call management uh, that they ignored for years because they didn't have the time. You know, when you're running again at a very fast pace, as, as Shelby, as you mentioned, this industry has been growing rapidly and it's hard to keep up with it. So this break was actually probably a benefit to companies that can survive it. The unfortunate thing is companies who were not in a good position to survive it have struggled. You know, they weren't able to afford to bring in new equipment or bring in you guys to do color management. They was basically have been trying to keep the doors open long enough. You right. know, and that's the downside of it. You know, I, I, I've had many friends in the industry that are looking for work right now and, and many other companies that we've dealt with that are on the fringe of not being there tomorrow. And some companies are gone. You know, they're definitely businesses that are no longer with us because of COVID. I agree. Um, yeah. we, you know. We've seen that too. So here's the question I think we really wanted to get to, Ken, because, uh, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is helping people come up with a strategy for starting up a dice sub business. And you have a unique perspective because you work with hardware, software, application, and supplies. So what, with your knowledge in all these areas, what advice or tips, tricks would you give? I know you kind of alluded to it earlier, but what would you give some advice to someone starting up a dice sub business? Sure. Yeah, no, I do have a unique perspective because I actually used to run a service company that dealt with all the servicing on equipment like this, and I've sold all the different supplies. And I've made a point to, to keep in touch with all the, the various aspects of it to know these companies. You know, I've, I've worked closely with, you know, the EFIs and the Durst and, and the other manufacturers. The first thing I would say is take a deep breath if I was a new company coming into this and understand what your market is, okay? What's important to you? You know, is it price, the footprint of your location? the customers that you're, you're selling to, okay? You know, like I mentioned previously, you know, you had transfer, you had direct, you have transfer, and you still have direct, and they both have a function. And, and, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, if you, if you it, it's like buying a car from Ford. Now, if you go to Ford, they're gonna tell you how great their car is, but they're not gonna tell you how great Chevy is, and it may have a different advantage to you, right? Um, good example. Okay, if I'm starting out in this business and I'm purely going to trade shows and that's my whole market and it's it's really a bunch of cookie cutter type displays like a pop up display. And my footprint is really small in my store. I want an all in one printer, you know, a direct printer that has a sublimation device built in. If I'm going to the retail display market where these guys are much more critical, you know, if you're going to a, a Best Buy or you're going and dealing with Nike or Coca-Cola they really care about their color, okay? Do I want to go with an all-in-one system which is hard to maintain that color? And, and let me elaborate on that a little bit more. An all-in-one printer typically has some printer up on top. It's, it's made by the manufacturer or maybe it's incorporated from some other manufacturer onto this heat press. The heat press is built into it and the heat press becomes a slave of the printer. Whereby if the printer is slowed down to do two pass or four pass, whatever you're doing, whatever mode you're in, you slow down your heat press. Now you guys probably know this, your heat press is probably the most important aspect of dye sublimation, has to be consistent. You don't wanna slow down your heat press and get the same results you had before. So for the trade show market, especially the pop-up displays, 
it's not as critical. I'm not going to say those guys don't care about blue being blue, but they really don't. They care more about the price of the display and they care about how quickly it can be done because maybe it's a last minute show and you need to get this print off that machine very quickly, sew it up and put it out there. And at the end of the show, they throw it out. So that's one consideration. You know, you have your floor space, you have basically the, your budget and also the type of printer that's gonna do the job for you. The other aspect of this, when you're dealing with direct printers, and I always like to point this out, everyone thinks that, hey, a direct printer is a dye sublimation printer. Well, if it's using dye sublimation ink, it's a dye sublimation printer. If it's using high energy dispersed dye ink, it's not a dye sublimation printer, although it's kind of performing in a similar way. And let me kind of go into the ink a little bit for a second. Low energy dispersed dyes, uh, sublimation dyes. Sublimation is basically taking a, a, a solid, turning it into a gas and back into a solid. And it goes right into the pores of the fabric and that's sublimation, dye sublimation in, in, in a very simplistic way. Well, if you're using high energy dispersed dyes, you're actually not going into a gaseous state. And that's important when you're dealing with a direct printer. There are advantages and disadvantages to it. One advantage to it is it's a, it's a bigger molecule. So if you're doing outdoor signage or flags, which is very popular amongst those direct printers, one, a direct printer will print the flag and pass the inks through the fabric a little bit better than a transfer printer would. So if you're doing flags, direct is the way to go. If you're putting it outside, high energy dispersed dyes are more light, uh, have better light fastness. So you're gonna have more longevity before it fades. Sublimation inks traditionally don't hold up real well to UV light. High energy dispersed dyes do. Now, you may say, well, then why ever use a low energy dye? Well, high energy dispersed dyes on a direct printer will completely get into the fabric. Part of that molecule, because it's going in more like a liquid state, part of that molecule will stay outside the fabric and it get crocking. Crocking, and, and, and some of your customers might have seen this, you take a piece of fabric, rub it across your fabric or put your hands on it, you may get a little bit of ink residue. And again, that could be a big problem if you're rolling up the print and sending it to a customer and all of a sudden he opens it up and there's some ink on it. Now, through the years, it's gotten better. The ink companies have tried to mitigate that. Folks like you guys have tried to mitigate it by getting a better profile so they minimize the amount of ink that's in excessive on the fabric, okay? But again, that brings up the point. You know, if you, if you are a flag printer, direct high energy dispersed dyes. And the reason I say there's a lot of misinformation because companies selling these printers will always refer to them as dye sub printers, no matter what kind of ink they're using. And in some cases you can switch. The printer doesn't really care what ink's in as long as it's consistent, okay? Another disadvantage of a, a direct printer with high energy dispersed dyes, or actually let me rephrase this. If you're using low energy dyes, sublimation dyes in a direct printer, well, again, it goes into a gaseous state. Unlike a transfer press where the fabric is sandwiched with the paper and maybe a uh, tissue paper, if the gas is all floating around the fabric, they can actually start sticking to other pieces of fabric and you get bleeding. So you see a, a piece of text and the edges are not sharp. Again, a disadvantage of sublimation dyes in a direct printer. So I'm sorry. I, I just so I just want to um, interject real quick, just so our, our listeners are maybe 100% clear what's happening. Uh, I have sure. some experience with direct um, direct sublimation, and so mm -hmm. one of my one of my customers actually does direct sublimation to carpet um, mm -hmm. on a 
more than 200 inch wide uh, printer. And so they, they basically um, sub or print directly to the carpet. And right. then I think what's important that people realize is even direct sublimation still has to go through a heat press. Um, yes. Yeah. And so it, you know, you still have that extra step and, um, and tip and they, and for reasons that you've already alluded to, they, they actually make use of, instead of paper, they have some very inexpensive fabric that they've, that they've sourced and they when they run it through the heat press they run fabric on top of the carpet to essentially prevent all the things that you talked about that prevent it from getting dirty um prevent it from bleeding and and um and uh and smearing and all all of those things and it seems to and it, and it gives it also because it's carpet and it's thick it gives mm -hmm. the humidity and such that would be trapped in the in the carpet itself plus the ink residue it gives it kind of a path out through that fabric, which seems to work better than tissue paper typically. I mean, have you have you ever seen situations like that? Yeah, no, actually, it's 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 an interesting method. Not many folks are doing it with printing on fabric and then sublimating it too, but it, it would work. I can see it in theory, and and I can give you another example of it besides using it on carpet. But let me just say one thing: when I'm mentioning direct, you're right. It has to have a sublimation device, and you don't have to have it built in. I was going to get to that point. You know, in some cases, you, you print directly onto the fabric. You then take it over to a heat press. Instead of using a, a transfer paper on top, you don't need to. You just put tissue paper to keep it from making a mess on your belt. And it's, and it's more efficient, actually, in a way, because you're not varying the, 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 um, the top of the heat press. Um, but it reminds me of another story. You know, a few years back, well, actually back about 15 years ago, there was a gentleman doing 3D printing using, uh, and it was on, not on fabric, but it was on metal. He, he was actually taking pieces of metal and wrapping it with fabric and actually putting it into a, a pressure chamber where the fabric would stay taut and it would transfer onto the metal. It, it, it going along the same concept. So I can see this being on carpet, you can put a lot more ink most likely on the fabric and try to get it to transfer over. No, no, they, they, they actually printed to the carpet Oh, they're using they're using the fabric as a um, instead of the tissue paper. Instead of the tissue paper. Ah, okay. No, I'm not seeing that outside of this. Well, because because you know if you think about it, the the carpet has all those fibers, and the, the tissue paper a lot of times would get stuck down in, and it would rip. And whereas a thin piece of fabric seemed to hold up better going through the press. Yeah. So. It would make sense, but but I was I thought, and I, like I said, the opposite I've seen used where it was especially coated fabric which you're printing to the fabric and you transfer the ink over to the main product. Which is even more interesting to me. That 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 one had me going, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, that was somebody that developed that about 15 years ago. I think he's in his 80s now. And he was trying to, to actually uh, get other folks to take on the technology. He had literally, and, and again, it's sidetracked, he literally sublimated a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Wow. In pieces. Yeah, it was beautiful. Um, but, but no, it's... I can see that. I mean, carpet is going to be a lot more abrasive. So tissue paper um, may not do well. I mean, it's not a market I know well as far as carpet, um, but I can, I can see it and, and why that would work. Where are your fabrics primarily used? Uh, Aberdeen fabrics, it's used basically in the trade show and vet market. It's used in the retail market, the home decor market. Um, we don't really make any fabrics for the apparel market, even though some of our fabrics, like the circular knits, are apparel style knits. It's not a market that we've gone into, but but again, to back on that that topic of of what to look for, 
I mean, the other considerations really are size. You know, a lot of folks think they need a big printer and, and quite often they do. You know, 10 foot is, is what the standard is these days, right? But I mean, if you're printing flags, if you're printing just small banners, a 60 inch printer could, could suffice. You know, if you're a small sign shop, you know, a fast signs, a signs by tomorrow shop, you're not gonna have the room for a 10 foot printer. And if you wanna enter into the dice up market, getting a small Epson and a small little heat press may be the way to go. You know, I, you know what I always say to a customer is getting into the market, really is just sit down with somebody that's gonna be non-biased to a particular technology and just literally tell them what you're, you're trying to achieve. What are your, 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 your main points? You know, like it's saying price, your, your, your type of customer you're, you're dealing with, the markets you want to get into and where you want to expand to. Because, you know, dice up equipment can get pretty pricey. The other side of it is speed. You know, I mean, if, if let's say it's a, it's a customer who's already been established, not just a small sign shop. And now they're starting to work in the world of, of retail or they're working in the world of, of, of home decor. We're doing a lot of repetitive products, right? Like if, if you're doing retail, you're not doing a lot of one-offs like you're doing a trade show market. You know, trade show market, typically a customer may print thousands of yards of fabric, but very seldom he prints more than one copy of whatever he's printing. If you're doing even wall coverings and you're doing, you know, 10,000 yards or 20,000 yards of the same image, now you want to consider the type of printer you're getting from a different regard. How fast is that printer? You know, and printers have gotten faster and faster and are going to continue getting faster. You know, back in, in when I first started in this, you know, if you're getting 300 square feet per hour, you were doing well, maybe even 100, right? You know, now you're getting printers doing 8,000. And then the next stage are the single pass printers, which can do 35 square meters a minute. Right. It's crazy. Now, again, if I'm a trade show guy, if I bought either one of those printers I just mentioned, I just wasted my money. Right. If the printers can't keep up with the rip. You know, if you're already ripping thousands of files, well, you know this more than I do, Okay the printer's going to stop, wait for the damn thing to come through and then keep printing. But if I'm printing one image a thousand times, a single pass printer that can run this out in minutes would be advantageous. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So, so again, it, there's so many different factors that play into it between the inks, between the types of machines, the speed that you require, you know, and, and most salespeople are quite good for all these companies. But again, if, if I'm selling, I, you know, I don't want to bring up brands now because that's not what we're here to do. But if I'm selling a single pass printer for one of the manufacturers, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to tell a trade show guy it's not worth it for him. I'm going to tell him, no, this is fast. It's going to do your job. And then you buy the printer and realize it's sitting there half the time. All right. So um, I, I think that's we really we really appreciate you sharing all that information because we do have a lot of people who are, are just getting into this. Um, but what we like to do about this time in the uh, in the show is do three more questions. Two of them are for you, and then you get to ask us one, almost anything. Um, we got to throw that almost in because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so our first one, and it sounds like, you know what, I guess you haven't really answered this. Um, what what do you see right now as the most interesting trend in dye sublimation? Or, you know what, I'm going to open it up for you just in fabric because you seem to know a lot about fabric. Well, you know, really, it's it's the engineering of the fabric has changed so much and where it's going to go from here. You know, like I, uh, I didn't mention this, but back when I first started, you had 
very limited supply of fabrics that were rigid. They weren't very uh, foldable because it was the beginning of the market. But as the demand of customers have, have, have come has have come forward, you know, with more elaborate displays, you know, SEG frames wrapping around columns, the fabrics had to evolve and be engineered to accommodate these. And, and that's really what I think is 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 really exciting for us is seeing where that's going, you know, and it's being driven. The other thing that I think a trend that I think is going to come to be um, very popular over the next couple of years is recycled fabrics. You know, fabrics that are made out of recycled yarn and fabrics that can be, I mean, any polyester can be recycled in theory. The problem is there's an abundance of fabric trying to be recycled and it's, and the demand for the, the product of the recycled fabrics is not very high right now. You know, hopefully that trend will change, but making fabric out of recycled yarns, which is another area I didn't even mention that we took took the lead on over the last six months is developing and designing fabrics made out of recycled yarns. Um, I think that's gonna be a big trend, especially starting out in the retail world. You know, the retail display companies, you know, wanna have a better green footprint. You know, their marketing, you know, I, I can't say which ones are more popular than others, but you know, they, they wanna be out there going, hey, we're a green company. The trade show guys aren't there yet. I think they'll get there. Because again, a trade show, it's three-day event. They throw the fabric out. They don't care. But there's a cost to that waste. So these are some of the trends that I think that are going to really take hold over the next couple of years, especially as the market comes back. And Shelby's going to ask you the next question. Well, we always ask everybody this one uh, too. Uh, what's your favorite color and why? You know, black. Um, you know, why? I, I kind of always like black clothing. And, and maybe it's the bad boy in me that wants to have that, you know, 50s type look, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what my wife thinks about it, but you know, <laughs> black is my favorite color. Well, you and Shelby get along on that one. <laughs> Most of my clothes were black too. <laughs> I, know, I didn't wear black today. I probably should have, but uh, no, black is my favorite color. It looks color. black. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, it's a, dark, it's a dark color. I, I tend to like darker colors That's, anyway. But Yeah, we both do too, just because we're, because we're what we're doing, but... Um, all right, your turn. Time, you know, what, what do you have for us, Ken? You know, let me ask you this. You know, color management has is, is important. I know how important it is. I actually studied it a little bit back in, in the days I worked for Ilford back in my other life. Um, where do you see the trends going with color management as far as improvements and, and ease of, of getting consistency? Wow. Um, well, there's, <laughs> okay, so there's two. Well, no, I, I want to approach it from kind of at least two angles. The, so the first angle I'm going to approach it from is instrumentation. I think that for a long time, there was at least, at least my perception and probably the marketplace's perception was there was rather, it was rather, the marketplace was rather stagnant with new instrumentation mm -hmm. that properly supported color management in the dye sublimation space specifically on fabric, right? Fabric's a very unique substrate to, to measure with a spectrophotometer. And I think over the last two years, two very significant instruments have been released that changed that. And I, I won't mention brands because I think in this case it matters. Um, X-Rite upgraded their I1 line from the Pro 2 to the Pro 3, and they added the Pro 3 Plus. And the Pro 3 Plus has what I can only describe as a gigantic aperture in that product line. I think it's eight or 10 millimeters, I forget. It's gigantic though by, by I1 standards. And, and as a result, it, it does a much better job. And, and for other reasons, they changed the illuminant, they changed a bunch of things. And so that, that changed the, the quality of the measurements 
At the same time, Barbieri upgraded what I still believe, they upgraded what was already the, in my opinion, the best instrument out there for, for textile. And that was the, um, their LFP instrument. And they created the LFP QB, which again was a change in illumination and also a change in software that is so cool if you're doing fabric. And I, and I got to work with this firsthand. Um, there's a little camera on the instrument. And so when you take something like a gator and you, you, you print your color management target and you try to get it put down on the, on the measuring table and it's, a, you know, it's basically a self-adhesive table. And, and as you know, gators stretch, right? And so they stretch a little when you pull off the tacky paper, they stretch a little when you stick them on the, stacky, on the tacky bed. And so with most instruments, they, yeah, you can, you can mark the corners, but you have, you have in uneven lines as you go along the rows of, of measurements. And this thing takes a picture and it figures out where the center of each and every patch is and it goes along and it measures the center of each and every patch, even if it's stretched out a little bit, which I mean, again, right. the, the impact on, on the quality of your profile that those two instruments have had, especially in textile is I think tremendous, right? And so that's, that's kind of from a hardware and a measurement point of view. Um, and then I just think all the rip manufacturers are getting way better at, um, at managing gray balance. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a G7 expert and rarely, rarely do I have to create a set of curves when I'm working in the inkjet space because the rip, and that, and that's not, that's not me. That's the rip manufacturers doing a better job with their ink limiting, their linearization or calibration, their total area coverage functions. They're making all of those work better together so that by the time you print your characterization chart, it's fairly gray balanced at that point. And then whatever algorithms they're all using to generate their um, actual ICCs, they just, they really focus on gray balance now. And, and, and I think that, I don't think the importance of gray balance can, can be understated um, or overstated. I mean, it's just, it is, it is the be all and end all of color management. When you have a gray balance profile, everything else works. I would agree from my knowledge, my, my limited than you guys have obviously, but but Barbary has been a standard for, for fabric for quite a while, you know, so I'm glad to hear that X-Rite has come a long way. Yeah, well, and Barbieri upgraded that instrument. You know, I didn't even mention one little feature. They have, um, it, it has like a little um, a blower in it, like there's a little motor and a, and a blower and it literally puffs out if you get the highest end unit. It literally, it's a little puff of air after every measurement to keep the fibers out of the, the, the aluminum. And well, Shelby, I think I think you would agree, and I'm, maybe you can jump on this one a little bit. Um, the growth of the importance of spot colors. Uh, yes, but um, people are. I, we always say that spot colors is misunderstood in the rip; it's not used properly, or they don't even know where to find the functionality to uh, work with spot colors. But yeah, we're brand colors. Um, definitely, I've seen that be more of a topic when we come in to train and consult. Uh, the, but really, what I've noticed from being in the industry, what um, I'm seeing more of a thirst for knowledge. Um, I, I don't think before, even three, four, five years ago, they would bring us in, they'd have us do the work, we'd do the work, and we'd leave. But now they want to—they want the fishing pole, you know? They want to learn how to fish too, and so 
I find myself doing a lot more um, teaching while we're on site and you know, showing them the correct color management settings in their software, explaining what how the process we're going through as we're profiling, how the spectrophotometer works, what this RIP software can do. You know, people really have a thirst for knowledge when it comes to color management now. You know, and I, I didn't really feel that way three, four years ago. Actually, I'm gonna agree with you all the way around because you asked me, you know, what the biggest change in Dice Sub. The biggest change really is is the quality demands that people are now expecting. You know, if you look at back yep. when it first started taking hold in 2000 and through really, um, 2007, they didn't care. It was an image on a print on fabric. They were thrilled. You know, now they're getting much more uh, demanding of the color, of the quality, of the resolution. You know, all that's becoming much more in play. So it really falls into where you guys can really help with that. But uh, the other thing I, I, I liked is, you know, you mentioned a camera. You know, camera technology across the board is it's done wonders in, in our industry and across in every industry, I should say. But, you know, even for us, you know, one of the things that we've incorporated is we have cameras that read every ounce, every inch of fabric that comes off our, our machine. So we can actually see any defects immediately instead of having it the way it used to be done, which is somebody staring at it through a light box and he'll miss a, a defect. Cameras don't miss anything. So no, it's, it's, it's great to, to see it's being incorporated even in a dice up world. Yeah, everyone. I mean, I'm sorry, dice up on the color management world. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. We uh, we give you an opportunity here to let our, our listeners know where they can find you or your company or both online. Sure. You know, we're, we make great fabric. We're, we're lousy at an online presence. The best way to find me is really send me an email personally. I'll be even happy to answer any questions for folks that may want me to elaborate a little more about what they should buy. Even though I don't sell equipment, that's why I feel I'm not biased. I'll, I'll give them an honest recommendation. Really, it's, it's kbach at Aberdeen Fabrics, fabrics being plural.com, and bach is spelled B-A-C-H. Okay. So they, you know, feel free to email me. Again, we do have, an, we do have you know, aberdeenfabrics.com, but it's not much of an online site. They can send an email there. But, uh, you know, Tim has always said, we make great fabric. We do a lousy job of marketing. <laughs> so. Well, what we'll do is we'll get your uh, we'll get your email address in the show notes when it gets posted. That way, that uh, sure. easy easy for people to find it. So. Yeah, they feel free. I'm I'm happy to, to any of your your listeners if they wanted to send me a quick email and say, hey, I'm looking at this piece of equipment. What do you think? I'll okay. give them at least my view on it. You know, again, I'm not here to sell equipment. That's great. We appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you very much, and and uh, we look forward to seeing you again at a trade show soon. Great. Well, definitely. We all hope to be at a trade show real soon. I like the Zoom thing, but it's getting a little bit old. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. No problem. You're welcome, guys. Take care.